like we are live and uh true to our our normal style we're just we're just jumping right in with with some coffee and and some chit chat and you'll notice there's somebody different here um this week we got garrett hartle joining us what's up everybody (laughs) and and we are sans sans eric and sans owen owen decided it would be a brilliant idea to yet again what's up everybody Move and, and we are during uh, a blizzard. Franz Owen Owen decided oh. it would be a well, brilliant well, idea. Do you have us open, uh, Garrett? That was me. Sorry, we <laughs> <laughs> fixed it. Cool. Um, yeah, so Owen's moving his fiance up from warm, sunny Florida to a blizzard Philly right now because <laughs> um, he's just a glutton for punishment. So he's not here. And Eric's uh, he's a working man. Lucas is also a working man, but Lucas gets up super early and and is usually back home by the time I'm still just making coffee and I'm the slacker around here. So, <laughs> yes, um, yes, that winter schedule where I, I just have to do morning sweeps most of the time. So get up really early, get out there, make sure nothing's on fire and then go home. Yeah. <laughs> so the nice thing about um, I think the majority of folks who are going to be listening today is I think everybody knows who you are, Garrett. Um you know, you're, I wouldn't go that far. Well, (laughs) we'll find out if anybody doesn't know who Garrett is in the chat, um, you know, flip your rock and then say hello (laughs) and then crawl back under your rock. Uh, (laughs) But um, the reason, so normally these carpets and coffees are literally just unscripted chit chat and hanging out because we, you know, as I'm sure, you know, when you get in conversations with reptile folks, there ends up being some really good discussion, just stimulating discussion. And uh, in the topic of putting out good information, your YouTube channel is very, very informative. And uh, I think I think for, uh, there's so many ways to say it, but you've really made it, you've really brought back the fun in being informed and having that educational like sort of detail to your animal keeping. And I like that because at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're keeping reptiles. It's supposed to be fun, but I see a lot of crossover between the super dwarf market and carpet Python market, because you're getting people from other parts of reptiles sort of as they explore different avenues in the reptile world, they're coming across carpet pythons and super dwarf retics and some of these other sort of specialized animals. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mistakes that people make when first getting into them. And you recently put out a video talking about, you know, some things to know when getting into super dwarfs. And I, I just couldn't help but see the crossover between carpet pythons and super dwarfs because there are so many subtleties. It's like a sub niche within a niche. You know what I mean? Well, you have like, I mean, not all of them, but in general, the, the super dwarfs are going to be very similar care wise, very similar size wise. Um, they're also, they're both, uh, really beautiful groups of animals, right? So they're not like something where the, the base version of the snake is ugly. I mean, carpet pythons are usually, most of them are very beautiful, uh, reticulated pythons, I think have the same thing. Um, but then more than that, from, from like a breeder interest standpoint or a buyer standpoint, you have, uh, different species, different subspecies, uh, there's morphs which uh, uh, many times are crosses of the different subspecies. And then there's localities getting more specific. 
Um, and, and you have all that kind of thing. So, so sort of the morality behind the, the market and stuff <laughs> really transfers over, you know, you get a lot of the things well, like you guys have, we have bad eaters. If you cross out to a Burmese, oh, yeah. you, you guys have Carpondros. So you mm-hmm. can go, oh <laughs> you can go as wild as you want, you know, as crazy with that. And then you have people that are like super micro specific, you know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, I, I want to work with, oh, you guys are doing coffee. I'm doing tacos and Coke. I like it. Ooh, <laughs> it's, nice. it's Coca, Coca-Cola type Oh, you Coke, got the real kind though. The, like the real Coke Me- and the Mexico glass. Coke. Oh, yeah. Is there, any nice. other, is there any other type? I mean, we spend money there on other be. drinks. Yeah, right. There should not be. Yes. The imported anyway. Coca-Cola. So, well, it's, it's a Mexican it's garbage it's and coffee, be. tacos, and tiny retics. I appreciate yeah. quality. Yeah, wherever I'm at, whether it's lunch or Superdorf retakes, it's the Good same level you. of attention. No, Good for you. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I I, uh, I actually think like we were talking about before, like re- reticulated Python market in general is is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, because they're such a giant reptile, it's a totally different niche than where I'm working with the Superdorfs with the with the dwarf and Superdorf market. It's very much like carpet pythons like you said different history different timeline mm-hmm. but the snakes are very similar yeah they um i don't know i i just find myself you know drawing so many comparisons and i just thought you know one of the biggest things that i find talking to folks that are just exploring the world of morelia is they're asking questions about these different subspecies and localities and and trying to understand their differences and which, you know, which of those the more stem from and what terminology to use. And, you know, one of the things that has to be insanely challenging in, in the, the super dwarf world is breaking it down into those micro percentages that you guys use when you're starting to get into locality crosses or the, the bringing some of those mainland morphs in. And, and I know the Morelia world really prides itself on, uh, at least just making sure that information is accurately passed on to customers and that sort of that lineage and that history is maintained in the best integrity possible, at least my, mainly for pure stuff. But even, you know, for for exceptional mutations, people like to have that information. How do you how do you tackle that in in retics when it is so complicated and there's so much fine detail? Well, so the one thing that we have with Dwarf and Superdwarf that you guys don't have, I suppose you could have this, but I haven't seen Mm -hmm. anybody do it. As far as I know, um, you know, most reptile species we're breeding for, if you're talking about selective breeding, outside of just pure projects, but even within those, you're you're breeding for color and you're breeding for pattern, whether it's Mm -hmm. ball python, carpet python, leopard gecko, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any other species that adds a third dimension that the Superdwarfs do, which is size. Because the smallest super dwarves are going to be the size of like a big, uh, you know, hypen- that's funny. Uh, sorry, I'm getting distracted by your comments here. Um, so there really is this third dimension. The smallest super dwarves are the size of like a big rat snake, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe like a small adult male jungle carpet python, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about five foot, six foot. Yeah, and, like and that's that big around. Yeah, exactly. And that's the size of the smallest options available with superdwarfs. And then the biggest ones are nothing short of the largest snakes on the planet. So there's right. a huge range. And that's where a lot of the locality and bloodline tracking comes from. Whereas, you know, if you get um, in, in the carpet python world, what you might consider like a pet grade carpet python, say mm-hmm. I go to Petco or something, I pick up a carpet python. 
I don't really know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Is, yeah, is it an IJ? Is yeah. it an IJ coastal cross? Is it whatever? You know, if right. I if it's you, you see people like if mine's ooh, mine's got a lot of pretty gold on it. Must be a jungle carpet python. Sure. But if you don't know, you better not breed it into your pure jungle carpet python. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? That would be a, yeah. a, a capital sin. But as far as pet grade, you're okay with that. Yeah. With the retics, you know, the pet grade stuff still need you you need to pay a lot of attention to. Because if you're just getting started and you want to work with an animal that's like, you know, let's say six, seven, eight feet, something like that, which, and they're long and skinny snakes. So an eight foot reed tig is about the size of a big ball python. They're yeah. not huge, mm-hmm. but you want to make sure that they're not going to get 14 feet on accident. Right. Because that's a, that's a massive <laughs> difference. Yeah. So even as a beginner, you do need to pay attention to that. Yeah. Um, right. And then the, the, the current status of the market is that, there are v- really very few people that are focused on dwarf and super dwarf breedings or on the selective breeding of making small snakes. Mm-hmm. Most of them are, um, they're like mainland retic breeders that see the larger market size or the larger purchase price, greater interest in the super dwarf bloodlines. And so they try to get involved. A lot of times they're not very informed themselves. And so they, they do these breedings and stuff, or you have flippers that are like, well, this is old and it's small. So it must be a super dwarf, mm-hmm. right? Because I would never admit that I try to stunt it so I don't have to move up a cage before I can sell it, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> and so a lot of those animals, whether by you know people being outright dishonest or accidentally doing it because they're ignorant to kind of how it works over multiple generations, they misrepresent animals. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge number of misrepresented animals in the super dwarf and dwarf market which is a very scary prospect because if I buy a misrepresented uh, carpet python as a pet, it really doesn't matter. Exactly. You know what I mean? I'm probably going to, they're all within a a close range. They're certainly bigger and smaller subspecies, but But it's negligible. Not to the extent that we're dealing with, with retakes. Right. Right. Um, And so if it's misrepresented, you know, whatever, don't breed it. If someone calls their thing an IJ and it's half IJ, who really cares if it's just their pet? Right. You know, with, but with uh, with the retics, it's a it's a bit more of a problem. And there's also a big uh, price discrepancy mm-hmm. in the morph crosses if they have super dwarf in them. Mm-hmm. So people tend to exaggerate in their favor. Sellers exaggerate in their favor to sit, to move the animals. Um, and that's not good for the buyer. That's not good for the animal. Sure. So, yeah, that's a different level of like, uh, as you said, morality and ethics to the market that that we don't have because the, the size variation when something is mislabeled, it, it doesn't it doesn't put a potential buyer at risk essentially for having an animal they're not prepared for. You know, if they're only capable of handling something up to eight feet and they they wind up with something that's 12, 14 feet, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. that's a big difference. Yeah. Well, yeah. you guys too, and like Lucas, you can probably mm-hmm. speak to this. Some of the cooler, rarer animals, uh, let's say like a Centralian python or a Bredeli, right? Um, some of those things are are mostly appreciated as they are. I, I wouldn't think that too many people are selling pure Bredeli that really aren't pure Bredeli, right? Right. right. I mean, right. I, you probably have a, a little bit of that from the crosses, but for the most pe- for the most part, if people want Bredeli, they go get a pure Bredeli, and they're they're I mean, when I was a kid, they were uh, unobtainium, right? Pure red <laughs> line. But, sure. uh, but, but now they're reasonably priced and you have so many yeah. gorgeous, selectively bred pure lines. Absolutely. You know? It's very true. Um, really, I, I think kind of the albino 
uh, brettle, brettles are are the only thing where people are regularly hybridizing or jags the the bread live jags brettles yeah jags. people make brettle jags true, true. but with both of those it's very obvious you're not going to get fooled um, right you know once you once you dilute a centralian with i shouldn't say dilute hybridize a centralian with with a uh, morelia spilota you're gonna know uh, right Mm-hmm. Well, and the, I mean, the thing about it is if you can get like, what is a, what is a, a decent bread lie baby go for? Just straight bread lie. I saw uh, Owen has one on his website for like 150 at the moment. Yeah, a, I think, a normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, so think, the, I think the healthy range is 150 to 250 depending for a normal. Yeah. yeah. So the, the question is like, if I was trying to make albino brettles and I have a bunch of pos hats, those are what I'm considering like the pet grade animal. They sure. don't really like a male pos het albino half centralian. Yeah. That's not a desirable animal to anybody from a breeder standpoint. You right. can't right. maintain pure bloodline. You're probably not going to buy a pos het male to right. start an albino project. That would be silly, you know, <laughs> but Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. But there's not a huge financial difference between that animal and a pure brittle. So if I pure, yeah, yeah, if I can get a pure centralian for two hundred bucks, why on earth would I buy a a fifty percent pos het? You know what I mean? But like, yeah, those pos hets might sell for I don't know. I'm just I've never seen one for sale, but maybe fifty right. bucks, seventy five bucks, something like that at a pet tri- a pet show, Probably. and they can be very beautiful and they can make amazing pets for somebody. Yeah, but as a seller, I'm not going to stake my reputation on something that's so easy to to dispel as selling a pos hat as a pure centralian to make right. an extra hundred bucks on a sale. Right. right. Whereas in the retic world, people are, you know, people like to argue over the definition of what constitutes a dwarf and super dwarf in the first place. And right. usually when they make those kind of arguments, they're trying to broaden the definition so that they can include their animals, which don't really, you know, shouldn't count as a dwarf or a super dwarf. Right. Yeah. I find that those folks that are a little bit wishy-washy on their definition, it is the mechanism that they they use. Like, do they tell people just to underfeed, try to keep it small, or like if if say I bought something that was labeled as a dwarf or a super dwarf from mm-hmm. an reputable source, and it turned out to not be, and it started getting very large, do you do you feel like there's a a tendency for those folks to blame the consumer and say, well, you power fed it. your fault. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of customer shaming mm-hmm. involved in that. And really, if you buy what, what people don't see until it's too late, if they buy a dwarf or super dwarf from less than desirable bloodlines, they go show it off online and they're happy with their pet or whatever. They just want to be, Hey, look what I got. Right. And then if they're wrong, people jump all over them. Oh, that's not really that, you know? And, they miss out on the whole experience of being able to have an animal that even as a pet that you're proud of, you can say, I got it from such and such bloodline. And, you know, if yeah. you have that, if, if you have them from a good bloodline, other people who are super dwarf enthusiasts will jump on and be like, well, wow, that's cool. That's great. I got one too. You know, how nice is that? Um, but when you don't, there's, it, it's the flip side and there's the shaming. And so, yeah, you definitely see that usually when sellers are telling you, like we do a lot of videos on how to properly feed. Mm-hmm. I think just probably like every American animal, most super doors are overfed. Most right. snakes are probably overfed, right? I mean, yeah. in any species. Yeah. Um, the dangerous flip side to super doors, sometimes people buy stuff and then they dangerously underfeed to try to manipulate the size. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where sellers tell you, you need to not feed these things if you want them to stay small. 
our our outlook is like that's kind of like pedaling off an alligator in a 1970s carnival and telling them <laughs> it'll never outgrow a 10 gallon aquarium if you keep it in that right right it's like come on guys i mean if you want to keep a reptile in a 10 gallon aquarium you're looking for a western bang banded gecko not a baby alligator right you know what i'm saying just buy the right reptile in the first place um but that's what they do. They say, now this is a dwarf, but you know that dwarfs is not really based on genetics at all. It's all about food. Mm-hmm. And I that's think people, fair. buyers have this lack of common sense. Like if someone was t- telling me they're going to sell me an animal for more money because it's a dwarf, but it doesn't, the, the genetics don't come into play. I have, it's all based on how I feed it. My first question would be, why am I paying you more money? Yeah. Right. If I have to feed, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, Absolutely. It, like and, so, and so if somebody bought a really high quality, high percentage super dwarf from you, mm-hmm. um, and they power fed power fed the hell out of it, mm-hmm. you wouldn't end up with a 14 foot snake. You'd end up with no. a six to eight foot snake that's obese. <laughs> yeah, giant blood python. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what you would get. You'd have an eight foot snake as big as your thigh or whatever. You'd be like, whoops, right. wrong species. No, uh, we always encourage, like, I don't care what reptile it is. You as a keeper, it's your responsibility to give them good husbandry, right? So what we say is feed them for the prime body type. And it is hard. I I think people need to learn, like, they're not supposed to look so round and squishy as they often do in captivity. Yeah. So we try to share pictures of, like, look at this beautiful, healthy uh, adult, whatever. Uh, I I share a lot of pictures of, like, my wild-caught animals, um, which came at a certain came in at a certain size and then have maintained that body type. Mm-hmm. I think for those, for me, that's the ideal, um, you know, physical body type for what those animals should have. And we feed to try to achieve that and, you know, give them exercise and things like that. So right. many people keep them in really, you know, uh, short enclosures. I mean, it's the same with carpets. Like you could probably yeah. keep it in a four by two by 12, I suppose, mm-hmm. if you want a pancaked out little carpet python. But if you give it a, a four by two by four foot high cage, you're going to end up with something coupled with the right diet that looks like these gorgeous animals from nature magazines and stuff like right. that, you know? Yeah. And that's what we want, right? So, yeah, it's, it's probably fair to say the majority of retic keepers don't keep the way you would expect to keep an arboreal animal. Um, but no, cool. it's, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to do that. I mean, right. if you think about it proportionally, let's say I buy a nice small super dwarf, but I want to take really good care of my animal. So I buy a, a little super dwarf male. that's going to end up about six feet long, right? This is kind of like minimum size range for a super dwarf, right? And I buy it, uh, an enclosure that's uh, six feet by two feet by three feet. And I can set, you know, that's a nice, good size enclosure. It's not a small cage by any means, but that'd be a really nice display in someone's bedroom, living room, snake room, whatever. If you think about the length, uh, you know, like proportionately of that, that's a that's a six by two by three. And the, the industry standard, very unfortunately for a mainland reticulated python, regardless of what size it gets, is an eight by three. Right. You're lucky if you get three foot of height on an eight by three foot cage. Think about the proportions of that. If if your mainland is capable of pushing up to 20 feet long, you know, and I, my super dwarf is in a cage that is one time its length, you know, and then half of its length tall and a third of its length, let's say, from front to back. If I want to give those same proportions to right. a mainland just to have one nice display cage animal or whatever, you have to buy a shipping container and yeah, convert you it need into a, room. a cage <laughs> just yeah. to be proportionate. 
Yeah. You know, I, I don't think anybody, there's a disconnect there too, because it's hard. It's hard to provide a mainland with a lot of space. Certainly. But, and by mainland, I just mean any, any, you know, any reticulated python that's not from that dwarf and superdwarf island chain. Mainland is kind of a weird word because they come from 17,000 islands. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Very good but, point. Yeah. But at any rate, um, yeah, there's a disconnect where everyone will tell you when they hold the animal, oh, a reticulated python is much more uh, active, let's say, than a ball python. Mm -hmm. People always joke around about ball pythons being pet rocks, especially retic keepers. They mm -hmm. always say, they're too boring for me. I want something more active. Mm -hmm. And then putting a mainland animal in an eight by three foot enclosure, if you do the measurements, you do the math, that's proportionately smaller than putting a ball python in a CB70. Wild. <laughs> You know what I mean? And so they're like, no, nah, that is too boring as pet rock, all that kind of stuff. And I think most people would say a CB70 for a ball python is kind of like, you know, minimum. It's it's a good commercial standard. But if you sure. had one, I'd like to give it something bigger, you know. Sure. That is very um, well said. Yeah. So why would you think it's more active and more intelligent and then at the same time put it in something proportionately smaller than what you would give right. an inactive snake that you think has a dull level of intelligence? You know, and I, I'm not saying ball pythons are that. I'm just saying that's the way mainland breeders look at them. So absolutely. Interesting. Where's yeah, the disconnect? I'm just yeah. trying to go back. <laughs> so, so Riley, back to your original question. Like, as I develop this market as much as I can, mm -hmm. um, because I'm very specific to one niche. I've just dedicated myself entirely to one thing. Mm -hmm. So that's where I spend all my time and everything. Um, as I develop it, I'm trying to just reconnect the common sense feature, like. Hey, don't pay more for an animal you have to underfeed because why would you pay more for genetics that do nothing? Right. If that's true, right? So don't yeah. buy from that breeder. He's trying to sell you something that is not worth what he's asking for. Uh, you know, think about the the body type. You know, how do you provide ideal circumstances? Forrest Fanning told me it this way. He said, you know, Garrett, there's so many people. I was talking about different reptile species he should get. And he said, I'm not ready for that stuff yet. And he goes, you know, my philosophy is I should never have to change the animal to fit my needs. I need to change myself and my needs and what I can provide to fit a given animal that I want. And if I'm not ready to do that for that animal, I won't buy it. Mm -hmm. And it's a simple concept, but very profound. I mean, there's so yeah. many of us that are like, well, how can I manipulate the animal to do this or to do that, to be better for me? You know, I really want to retic, but I want it to be the size of a ball python and, you know what I mean, have the temperament of a ball python with the price of a ball python. It's like, well, if it walks and quacks like a duck, guys, buy a duck, not a <laughs> saber-toothed tiger. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of have I have like this half joking sort of mentality of like, well, people want their retic smaller, just get a carpet python because you're trying to make a, a retic the size of a carpet python anyway. Yeah. And they're but, they're pretty similar in body type and, you know, activity level and all that kind of stuff too. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and the reason why I say that is is it's it's part just fun teasing and part because <laughs> uh part because if I convince myself that they're different then i'll need super dwarf retics and, and i have no room for those. <laughs> i have no money for those and i have too many projects to focus on anyway so i i have to like pace myself so it's also partly me talking myself off that ledge but in all in all honesty what you've what you've done for me as a let's just say i'm a passive content consumer in the reptile market i don't keep retics but i i 
I know what they are. I pay attention to your content and, and, you know, some of the other tertiary retake stuff out there. And I see that you've made it, you, you, like you said, you've reconnected the common sense. You've started to bring back the, well, what's, what's ethically best for the animals and how does that pair well with a certain audience, a certain group of people. And, and, it's sort of created this ripple effect of responsible ethical keepers. And I can't tell you how many people I see now. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I see it. I see it. Like there's so, it could be way worse with retics if ethics weren't a part of it. Cause you would see so many issues with people getting hurt or animals being let go or in even worse conditions in much greater frequency. And instead I find myself seeing folks dedicating entire outbuildings for a jungle gym for their retics or hanging things from the ceiling or taking them out on their kids. You know what I mean? And really focusing on that at the same time as focusing on their breeding goals and the morphs and, and they you've made it fun to balance being, um, being informed, being precise, being specialized, but maintaining the ethics in it. And, and instead of making it this chore and it's not worth putting the effort in, you know, where people could likely just cut corners and scam a market, you've made it. So it's, it's better to put in all that work because people value it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really interesting to see that. Well, I think anybody that, so I've kept a lot of different species over my mm-hmm. reptile keeping life, like a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody that has had that experience knows what it feels like to end up having too many animals or th- to the point where you're keeping them in a way that you wish you could keep them better. Yeah. Um, or you're just overwhelmed and you get burnt out and you're not having fun. Mm-hmm. And what the morph market has created, and I don't mean morphmarket.com, I mean right. the market for morphs in any of reptile species has created this gotta catch them all Pokemon collectors <laughs> mentality, you know, and um, that's fine. I have super doors because I like retics and I do like to collect them. And it's easier for me to have a lot of snakes that are small than a lot that are big because mm-hmm. I don't mind the big guys. They're, they're great. Yeah. But, um, but the, the problem is I, so I'm try, hoping people can learn from my experience where like with retics, people get into them, they get a baby. And before that baby's even an adult, they have 12 more <laughs> and they still don't really understand what it's like to have a large breed, you know, breeding, uh, you know, or at least breeding season, everything yeah. articulated Python hormones running through it at that size and rescues are flush with them. And, you know, people are always hunting for like babies. It's like dogs. People want to buy puppies, not dogs, Mm -hmm. you know, but people are always hunting for these things. And it's funny because rescues are full of like big adults, you know, breeders are always selling excess animals. It's probably as easy to find a big retic as it is to find a little one. I say, you know what? You think you got the cojones and, and have what it takes. Go get one of those first and then decide if you should get 12 more, you know, and get those ones from rescues too. That'd be great. But if not, I mean, probably do it in a little bit more of the reasonable fashion. Yeah. So, and just, a, I have an analogy for you, Riley, on the uh, carpet python versus retic, what the difference is. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> Re- retics don't know, superdors don't know they're little. Yeah. They're like Mr. Macho Apex Predator tiny guy. That's something that you really don't get in any other snakes where it's yeah. in their blood to own their environment. And it yeah. comes with a certain level of confidence that really works well in pets. 
You know, yeah. the other species that have this kind of stuff, a lot of times are like uh, venomous snake mimics. Like you'll right. notice king snakes have a lot of confidence because they're like, yeah, I got poison and I could kill you if I want. So I don't care. I'm going to crawl through the street in the middle of the day, you know, because I got these tricolor bands that, you know, make you at least think that I'm venomous. Yeah. So they're not worried about it. You know, they're not trying to blend in. They're not trying to do that stuff anymore. They're like, I'm here. I want to know what you're all about. Yeah. Retics have that. So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, uh, African lions are amazing animals. You know, it would be really cool to spend time with an African lion. I think that would be awesome. Do they make great pets for everyone? Not really. Probably not. Despite what you see on Tiger King or whatever, they really <laughs> don't make very good pets. Yeah. But they are cool animals to appreciate. Yeah. Now, what we do instead is we get cats, right? And cats are one of the most popular captive animals on the planet, right? Because they're cool and they have that kind of sense of wild. And so a cat is like a, it's like a carpet python. It's like a much more reasonable animal to have instead of an African lion. Yeah. What breeding super dwarves allows me to do is have an African lion the size of a house cat. Can you imagine right. if I could make a breed of house cat that has a huge mane and travels in <laughs> prides and... Acts yeah. like a, an African lion. That would right. be amazing. Right. Yeah. Or if I could make a, a, a an elephant that's the size of a Jack Russell Terrier and watch their <laughs> annual migration from my living room to my kitchen. That would right? be so cool. I'll take that's five. Why, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what super doors are. Their, yeah. their, their mentality is on a different level. Yeah. Yeah. So even though like care requirements, they're a semi-arboreal animal of such and such size with colors yeah. and there's morphs available in localities and things. There's a certain kind of badassery that a super dwarf has that is all retic that carpet pythons don't generally have. I agree. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's, that's really the difference for me. Cause I started with carpet pythons. That was my first right. exotic snake. Um, besides whatever stuff I could catch and yeah. I love them and they are a, a really amazing animal to work with, but the, the retics just, it's always a personal thing. I mean, like, you know, Lucas is working with Centralians and a lot of Australian stuff. So obviously like, like Womo pythons and blackhead pythons are gorgeous, but they're pretty derpy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes there's, that's appealing and endearing to a certain sure type of keeper. I, I like my snakes that come with a, a certain amount of badassery. I just want to be able to, to care for right. them well. So that's why I do the super dwarfs. I like so. having some on both ends of the spectrums, right? Like my blackhead tried to eat itself a couple of days ago, <laughs> Riley witnessed. Yeah. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, I'm finding the false water cobra to be incredibly confident and exuding yeah. an, a, a, uh, what's the word? An intelligence. Obviously I'm not, it's I'm anecdotal. They just seem smarter, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, they're very visual, and they have this whole tackle life by the horns kind of an attitude. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're that's not the way the retakes are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was thinking about that exact sort of difference earlier, and I, I didn't know how to put it into words to quantify it, but I definitely agree, and I think you said it really well, because even a baby retick just has sort of this innate level of confidence and understanding it seems from the get-go mm -hmm. that carpet pythons i find right when they hatch there there's a spectrum there are some that are little rippers right. right off the gate but a lot of them are really shy and they really need to hide and you really have to teach them food and teach them things and really foster that confidence in a new new hatched carpet python whereas i, I find yeah, like retakes, they just, from the get-go, they're inquisitive, they're switched on, they're, 
you know, they're confident about figuring out their surroundings and it's sort you, of, you don't want a defensive animal as a pet. You don't want an animal that's nervous mm -hmm. about its surroundings as a pet. Right. What a carpet Python needs. Let's take, say you take kind of like your typical carpet Python, right? Maybe a little sketchy as a baby grows out of it fairly easy with a little bit of handling, Yeah, but they need like age to be able to do that. Right. With reticulated pythons, they're they're much more cerebral in trying to figure things out. And so they might be sketchy in the beginning, but as soon as they figure out like, okay, mealtime is on Saturday. And when this guy does this, he's not trying to feed me, but he's never hurt me before. Right. So I'm cool with this guy. Right. Then they're confident. So it's just about creating a routine that they can figure out, which they figure out very quickly. Yes. Um, and then and then they have that level of confidence no matter how small they are. And boy, when it's feeding day and you have a little hatchling and it's like, like a lot of the pure, like we hatched the Karampas this year for the first time, right? You pull open a tub to feed those guys and they come out like those little cans of snakes with the springs in them. They're like, <laughs> you, you have to catch them. You know what I mean? Like, whoa, they're diving out and plopping on the floor to get the food because they know what's up. They've got to figure it out. They are not afraid, you know? That's and so that's, that's what does it. Um, the animals that are more reserved and timid have a, a harder time. You know I what agree. I mean? Yeah. So I'm curious, the, the smaller animals from those island localities, um, the populations that are naturally smaller, would you say that they, because clearly a, a mainland retic, if you will, is confident because it is enormous, right? Mm -hmm. And there's probably not much that can mess with it. Um, so on these islands where, where they are naturally smaller, are they predated on more heavily or are they still kind of at the top? Um, there are certainly predators above them. So, um, I mean, there's, uh, I'm assuming all kinds of birds, you know, mm -hmm. like a standard seagull would probably love to eat a baby retic. Um, <laughs> there are definitely water monitors on some of those islands, which make a quick snack of any snake, um, sure. and things like that. But, um, I don't know. I, I think that they have just an, an innate confidence that comes from way back. Right. You know, that, that gives them that, you know, they're kind of like, um, you know, I can say this, I'm pretty pink, but you meet an Irish guy that was born in America, but he still wants to fight you because four generations ago, you know what I mean? His dad <laughs> was in a bar fight every weekend and whatever it was passed on. Right. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So sure. there, there's something in there that gives them that innate confidence. I, I don't think that they're necessarily, some islands may be, some islands may, maybe not. Um, to be honest, then we have to, um, we have to, uh, study them more before we know mm -hmm. for sure what's going on. Well, but, it's very um, cool that they, they're able to hold on to that mentality, even in those situations. Uh, yeah, for yeah. whatever reason, it's allowed them to survive well and, right. and do fine. And they, they definitely have great camouflage and, and cryptic, you know, coloration and all that kind of stuff. So I, I yeah. think they survive just fine, but yeah, the the um, the attitude prevails. It remains. Certainly. I don't think they have the range of predators that a mainland would have, or or a carpet python, or anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably always, just a couple of things. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by like the inherent uh, personalities, if you will, of different species, and so it's 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 very interesting to hear that they hold on to that even in a completely different uh the nature versus nurture question is pretty cool yeah, yeah. absolutely and anything anything yeah. that lives <laughs> yeah it's interesting you can you could probably argue you know taking that mentality like selectively breeding for confident babies and working that into projects and stuff for the same end but yeah some species just have it 
I yeah. think that that happens regardless. Yeah. Personally. I mean, if an animal does well in captivity because of its personality, right. it gets fed a little bit more. It's going to have more babies. The mm -hmm. other ones that are spastic or whatever, you know, require more work as keepers. And yep. so there might be a few dedicated keepers willing to preserve that stuff, but they go into other people's hands and they kind of die off or get traded yeah. around. And I mean, look at how uh, scrub pythons have never really become you know, like really established. Even just lately, they're starting to grab a foothold, right. which is great. They're an amazing species, but we need some pretty seriously dedicated keepers to, yeah. to get these wild caught animals, establish them in captivity, get clutches for them raise them appropriately and and then move on if they had yeah. great personalities they would be very popular oh yeah but the ones that do have great personalities they're gonna their offspring is gonna outnumber they're like i'm loving life i'm gonna you know what i mean eat every time and never get sick and pump out a bunch of babies and do it year after year you know those yeah. are the animals that their offspring inevitably ends up overpopulating the, the captive selection of them anyways so you you can do that i think it does happen yeah. Any, anyway. Yeah. You, know. you can just choose yeah. to accelerate the process more, but it, yeah, it's going to happen one way or the other. No, that's, yeah. that's really a fair point. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to touch on as far as like the ethics go and, and, and creating a market is how, how you've managed to portray the snakes, market them, communicate them in such a way that uh, informs people whether or not this is the right snake for them, because obviously not everybody uh, has the, I mean, not to sound rude, but not everybody's capable of keeping a retic regardless of the size. Some people that might be overwhelming um, because of their confidence, because of their food response, because of their activity levels, things like that. But because we have social media and everything's in our face, people are able to see all of these animals everywhere and just by sheer beauty, like, Oh, I, I, I gotta have a white lip now. And you know, that's probably not the best, you know, first snake for anybody. Right. Uh, and so how, how have you managed to not only change the focus from taking these beautiful snakes and, and shifting the focus onto a more ethically sized one, but also keeping it, uh, sort of in keeping your audience informed about whether or not this is the right snake for you, because, you know, just because we make it smaller, doesn't mean everybody's obviously able to do that. And then you've also got a second layer of filtering that out with, with the price point on mm -hmm. the pure stuff because of the rarity and the hard work and time and dedication is taken into that sort of, you know, puts that in out, out of reach of the irresponsible, um, but you know, some of the lower, I don't mean lower end, but like more affordable and achievable animals. How do you, how have you sort of created this approach that, you know, one communicates to everybody, Hey, look into, look into super dwarfs. You know, if you guys want something that's awesome, this might be the snake for you, but also maybe, you know, just double check that this is the snake for you before you take the plunge. Because I think, you know, in recent years, you've really pioneered the the super dwarf world into making it just this really awesome and exciting and out there, easily, easy to find sort of group of animals, but keeping it so that people aren't going overboard and crazy and, and it's ethically done. Like, how do you approach that, I guess? So starting out, I mean, just so anybody listeners know my background, I've sold a lot of snakes over the years. Um before I moved to Pittsburgh, I worked at Prehistoric Pets. They produce a lot of mainland retics. I loved mainland retics. 
And like, I mean, when I moved there, I had like a room dedicated to an 18 foot female that would try to eat me every time. You know what I mean? She was horrible. I've had a lot of uh, wild caught mainland stuff and they were always just fun for me, you know? Um, <clears throat> at the same time, parallel, like I used to work with like wild horses and Mustangs that would also try to kill you. Oh, They're wow. a lot more effective at it than even the biggest snakes. So, you know, getting bit by a mainland occasionally that was trying to eat you wasn't that big of a deal compared to like horses kicking and trampling you. Yeah. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what ended my ranching career was the third time I broke my back working horses with horses. Horses are terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And I have, <laughs> for all the getting chewed on by snakes I've done over the years, I have like a half inch scar on one of my thumbs to show for it. And that's it. Horses, on the other hand, I mean, the list goes on. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but basically I, I kind of, after working with prehistoric pets, we do this thing where we assume other people are like us, that they think like us, that they have the same motives and passions and ethics in life. And so we're always surprised when you like, I would be surprised if someone bought a mainland retic and wasn't able to take care of it in the beginning. That was very surprising. You know, this is a retic, right? It's like literally like the longest snake on the planet. You can't really mistake it for anything. People are always arguing like what's bigger, green anacondas or reticulated pythons. You know, this is not an obscure species that you accidentally fell into that gets right. 200 pounds. You know, right. you had to do that on purpose. And if you didn't know that you like that you could take care of a 200 pound snake, why on earth would you buy a baby? But people do. <laughs> yeah. So that surprised me, but it took me yeah. a couple of years and 10,000 retakes later to figure out how many of them weren't making it. And I'll tell you, you like you were saying, oh, it's dangerous for people and stuff. It's never the person that loses that battle. Sure. It's always mm -hmm. the snake. You yeah. know, that those snakes are not around anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's very sad. And that was something that I did not want. So um, much to the chagrin of new people who find us, we still get people that go crazy that we don't have availability lists for everywhere and stuff. Because breeding in that third dimension of size means that there's only so much I can put on a label to tell you what you're getting. Mm -hmm. You know, the rest of it really, it's about the bloodline. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a there's like an industry standard of saying, okay, it's like half superdorf or whatever, yeah. but it's not a perfect mathematical equation. Hmm. It's not like, okay, I bred a six foot snake to a 20 foot snake. It's 50% superdorf. That means it's going to be halfway between six and 20 feet. That's not the way it works at all. So the, the labeling system we have for superdorfs does not perfectly describe potential adult sizes. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't want any of my babies, I'd rather just not breed, guys. I mean, I'm not yep. the guy that like has to be the, rep, the reptile guy. I've kind of been that my whole life. But I'm totally happy being the work in a box factory guy if that's what it takes. I, so my thing is like, ah, if it doesn't work, and I don't sell them. I'll just go back to work. And it, I haven't got to that point yet. But because of that, I wanted to basically do a, a brief interview. And even if it's just answering a few questions, you know, as an experienced seller, there are a few sets of questions that beginners use mm -hmm. when they're buying snakes and that advanced people have more interesting and diverse questions. Mm -hmm. So if they start going down that beginner's road, I want to definitely make sure that they know what they're getting into. And we have all kinds of videos out depicting adult sizes, talking about caging, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, so I, I do this thing where in, you know, we, we started reach out reptiles in 2015. I've been breeding the animals longer than that, but that's when the company was founded. Mm -hmm. Since then I haven't posted a classified ad right. to sell the snakes at all. 
Right. Um, people hear about us, they come about us, they, you know, they come talk to us and we sell them a snake and that's the way that it works. So that's the first thing. Um, I'm not against posting classified ads. It just really would have to be exactly the right scenario to make sure that my animals are going to good homes. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm less concerned about the sale because yeah. like I said, I can just go back to work if I need to. Right. Um, so that's the first thing um, is not having just giant lists of prices. Go ahead, buy whatever you want. Click <laughs> to buy now. And yeah. I never talk to you to see if you're a good buyer or not. Yeah. Um, and so that, that has really, uh, and then my videos, obviously putting out like, this is what you should know. This is what you should ask. This is what you should be looking for. This right. is what you need to determine if this is an animal for you. And then I try to show a reality of situations. Like I have videos about what to do if a snake bites you and doesn't let go where, you know, 11 foot female or whatever latches onto my forearm. Right. And I, and I took her outside and had a chew on her tail. Like it was corn on the cob to get her to let yeah. go. Yeah. I, I, I post that stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it, that is a reality that you may someday address if you mm-hmm. work with an animal, mm-hmm. you know, like if you have a pet dog, you should know that that dog can quickly dispatch your infant. You know, and if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but really probably think about leaving your dog alone with the baby in the other room. You know, that's not good idea because of what could happen, not what probably will happen, but what could happen. Absolutely. Um, so tons of videos on that. And then basically I, I, um, as far as the market went on some of the rarer localities, I just decided to flip the script. I just didn't care and I did it and so here's, here's what happened. Like when I was getting into super dwarves, if you bought a pure Kalatoa, they had Kalatoa albinos out, which obviously the albinos are crosses mm-hmm. and the pure Kalatoa would be less. So you would have like, let's say a Kalatoa head albino, which might be 50% Kalatoa Island, which is one of the super dwarf localities, mm-hmm. um, would be, let's say $400. And then and an albino would be $1,500. A pure Kalatoa might be $400 because <laughs> it's a normal wild type. Yeah. Right? And so people valued them as normals. And when that morph craze was taking over, the locality stuff just kind of disappeared. I mean, mm. you know, the original, the OG dwarf or super dwarf was a Jampea. And then when people found, and we call those dwarves, mm-hmm. and people bred them into all kinds of morphs, and there was all kinds of cool Jamp crosses, and they were desirable because people wanted to get a Jamp to breed it to their albino or their tiger or whatever genetic stripe, whatever project they wanted to do. As soon as they found a smaller locality, which would have been like the Kalatoas, for example, nobody cared about jamps anymore. The jamp morphs were still bred because people had already invested in those. The pure jamps, which were just normals, stopped being bred. In fact, we had a clutch of, of pure jampeas this year. They used to be the most common and least sought after. They haven't been bred in the United States for a decade. Dang. which is insane to me. Yeah. They're almost extinct. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has a little jamp something in their snake, but to find a pure jamp was uh, very, very difficult to do um, because they, they left them. They all went for the super dwarfs. So I thought that was dumb. Uh, it's obviously a lot easier to make a cross than it is to maintain the purity of a bloodline. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I, I, I've always been a locality guy. I love my pure locality stuff. It's so much more interesting to me to have the challenge of a project that is like, I had to wait to buy a legitimate baby, but I got this bloodline I want. And I know that it's the best bloodline I could possibly get. 
I had to pay a ton of money to get it. And then when I breed it, mine are like slightly more golden brown than mud brown. Isn't that great? <laughs> like, oh, I know, doing backflips or whatever. Cause like, look, three of the saddles are connected into a stripe. Oh, you know, <laughs> whereas the morph is like, you breed a Kalatoa to a super tiger female, you get a 60 baby quote unquote super dwarf tigers and you're done. Right. That's yeah. very boring. Yeah. You know, if, if you're in it for money only, go ahead, do that. I don't think that's the best way to make a small snake, but go do that. Post your price list. You know what I mean? Put them up as sure. 50% super dwarf tigers. You'll sell all of them. You know, you can come in a little bit cheaper than mine and, and blow out the clutch right now. Cause it's a popular market and you'll make money. I don't think that that's a, a really good and ethical way to do it. And having these conversations with my customers has really changed it, you know? So what I did on the pure localities was I said, okay, so the, the cross, you know, Superdorf had albinos, 400 bucks, albinos, 1500 bucks. Pure Superdorf then is going to be $2,000. And I was like, what? It's just a normal. I said, oh, that's not a normal. <laughs> that's a pure Kalatoa Island from verifiable bloodlines. You can't go get that somewhere else. And even if you do, it's probably wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Because those guys bought their animals when they were more like of a different mindset. Like they were thinking either like, okay, you know, uh, let's buy them as morphs. And so they probably are crossed with morphs in there because they had a morph based priority when they were buying their bloodlines. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they thought, okay, um, you know, the localities are probably like all one subspecies. So let's just go ahead and mix them, you know, buy them all up, not knowing what they are and try to separate them out later. Mm -hmm. Now that that they're more separated and appreciated separately. Those people have a hard time identifying which is which. Um, for us, on uh, on the other hand, it's always been about Jampea. It's always been about Kalatoa. You know, they're different, subtly different, and I love it. I love yeah. to understand those subtle differences and go for that. So we don't pick a snake out and determine decide what locality it was. You have to have some kind of bloodline information right. there. Right. So I just flipped the script and I started selling them higher. Um, and then we started talking about how to get these percentages. The other thing I noticed just on my personal breedings was that for selective breeding for size, if you use a giant female, you're getting big babies mm -hmm. that turn into big adults. If you use a really tiny female, you get really tiny babies that turn into tiny adults. Um, and so as I'm noticing that you can see all over the place, things that are listed as Superdorf and maybe they are legitimately a 50% Superdorf platinum, let's say. Mm -hmm. But if they were using mainland females to introduce the platinum gene instead of Superdorf females to mm -hmm. shrink it down with males, you get different results. Sure. Most breeders will go that way though, because like I said, a mainland female, let's say she lays 60 eggs to a little Superdorf male. I can rapidly, if I'm a mainland breeder traditionally and I'm trying to get into Superdorf game and I don't really care how it works or I'll just argue that this isn't true or whatever. All I need to do is buy one Kalatoa male. I can run them to my 10 mainland females and have Superdorf mm. everything in a year. Right. The problem is it doesn't really work that way. You know, the best stuff is when you buy those little females, you grow them up forever and then they lay you 10 eggs. Maybe, you know, now you're getting it. So I can't make the numbers of snakes that other people who are like, we breed more superdorfs than anybody in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you do it the easy way, yeah. you get you get results that that work with that. The harder way, in my experience with that, has been the better way. So what I what that did was it created overnight an insane uh desire for pure, legitimate locality females. Mm -hmm. And what I did every year, I remember the first year I was selling Kalatoas, um, 
And this took, I mean, there was some business strategy. So if you want me to air my dirty laundry, I'll tell you how it works. There was a, there were a few super, (laughs) yeah, here it is. Okay. So rewind the clock to 2000, I think it was like 2016, maybe. Okay. And I was going to hit the market in in a pretty hard way. There were a few breeders of pure Kalatoa animals that I respected and loved their bloodlines. I knew all the history on their bloodlines because they all got them from breeders that I knew and was acquainted with. They all had Kalatoas out there for like 500 bucks a piece. This is as recently as like 2016, right? Um, I bought them all. You know, I bought all of them. I bought every legitimate Kalatoa in the country. And then I said, well, these are my holdbacks, you know. And uh, I said, if you want to hold back one, like maybe you can get one next year from these breeders again. Maybe not. I don't know. And the thing about Kalatoa is like, they're not so consistent. You don't get a clutch from every female every year, right? So I said, you can try them next year for the 500 bucks or whatever that they sell them for. Um, or, uh, you know, I don't know. I got a couple holdbacks I might let go for a thousand bucks a piece if you want them. And I mean, here's the other thing. When I bought all those, I told all those guys, hey, you know, I gave you full asking price and bought a whole clutch. Do you have any customers like that? They're like, oh, I love that. Let me have them all. Full asking price. Do you, I mean, who of us reptile breeders ever finds a customer like that? That does not sound common. <laughs> no. So my strategy was just to be the dream customer. And I bought up all the Kalatoas. And then I held back for myself my favorite ones. And then the other ones I sold as, you know, holdbacks, which they were. I also told those people, I'll buy them all next year too. And Full asking price, I'll get the whole clutch. Just give me a little advance notice. I'll just write you a check when they hatch. Hmm. You know, and I had to mortgage my house, take out business loans, rack up my credit card, do whatever I needed to do. But I was betting on the fact that I could teach people that these actually are a lot rarer and harder to come by than these morph crosses. And let me tell you why. So I started a YouTube channel. I talked about how great they were. And at the same time, people started to see this hype I have this thing where I don't have to sell snakes really. I just record myself geeking out about how excited I am about stuff and it translates. And people, I think people will think like, look at Garrett. He's so happy. If I want to buy happiness, I better get one of those super doors. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't know if that's the philosophy behind it or what. Yeah. I mean, if we're being totally honest, I don't know, but I'm trying to be genuine on my videos and it, for whatever reason, it catches on. People see it and they, they want in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I sold them all at $1,500 that year. Um, and uh, most of those breeders did not pre- reproduce in the next couple of years. Mm. Um, but I did. And so what I did was I established the price starting at $1,500. And right. then I tried to keep a bunch back. I'm like, I, I need like a dozen more females for myself this year because I want to grow this business. And female calatoes are the right way to grow the business. What I'm telling everybody and I'm taking my own advice. So I said, okay, you know, I'll sell you the other ones, but my holdbacks, I'm not selling for a penny less than three grand. Mm-hmm. They sold for three grand. I sold out all the $1,500 ones and then everyone wanted my holdbacks. They sold for three grand. So in two years, they went from 500 bucks to $3,000. Wow. Um, and then all those other breeders took notice. And do you think they ever sold me a snake at 500 bucks again? Nope. No. And now a lot of these closet breeders are at, for 2021, we're looking at pure Calitos for 4,500 a pair. Wow. Um, and a lot of the, the hobbyist breeders or whatever, the guys that have one or two pairs. I mean, I, I know guys that have them available that are unknown breeders, but they're 5,000 a pair. They're yeah. not. And they realize how hard it is for them to produce them. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they don't want to let them go because they're trying to keep females for themselves too. Yeah. So we're actually now one of the lower priced animals at, you know, whatever that is, uh, seven times the market value that it was a few years ago. That's you can't do that with everything. No. Right. No. You you can only do that with a very underappreciated animal, mm-hmm. which right. is out there, by the way. I think uh, Eric is doing a great job with the IJ stuff. Yeah, right. They a long for a long time they've been like the cheap snake, yep. you know. But to get the colors and patterns that he's getting out of pure IJs, where he's got these ones that are like almost black, and then these crazy jungle carpet looking ones, and then my mm-hmm. favorite are like those honey colored, you know, where they're like mm-hmm. that chocolate brown and honey color. They're amazing. Yeah. Um, and and those are not easy to come by. You can go get some imported IJ, but you can't get one that looks like that. Right. Unless you wait and get one from his bloodline. And then it's fun because you you buy into this part of this community too. So I think that's the way people should do it. That's yeah. what, what I would want to do. Yeah. You know. So. I see I see a lot of similarities in the IJ market in that exact same way. Um, you know, they're uh, a very underappreciated type yeah. of python you know yeah and i think darwin's right. gonna be the next one in line because folks like eric take that mentality to them folks like nick mutton selectively breed his darwins he, right. he's distinguishing stuff that is attached to the albino lineage and stuff that has never been um integrated with stuff that has the albino lineage so he's he's created a, a sub niche and and sort of preserved some extra value and something that's different and then made it his own uniquely and so if you want this type of like high contrast striped Darwin that has no attachment to the albino lineage, you can only go to Nick for it. And he's creating this value in some of that. Mm-hmm. And now the carpet python market um, is starting to really see how important it is to preserve that same lineage and information in the same way. It's important to you guys to preserve that for your Kalatoas. The only reason it never happened before was because us breeders failed to explain what's truly precious and valuable to people. Sure. You have to strip away the marketing yep. it, with the morph craze that the marketing like splash was so ridiculous for so long that you're like, Oh my God, you got to buy one now. They're so rare and they're going to reproduce themselves and, you know, call in the next 15 minutes and you can have two (laughs) for the price of one, you know? And, and it was just marketing in your face. You know what I mean? Telling you that this, this animal is going to be somehow bring you happiness or be amazing. But the thing about the morph mentality in particular is that they will always start rare. You find an albino and it's really rare and exceptional, but it's a reproducible trait. Right. So they will always become more common. Right. With underappreciate. Yeah. Yeah. With, well, in the hands of good breeders. Yeah. Sure. The thing with, um, with pure locality stuff is it's limited supply to start with. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and so like for imports get harder and harder. Look at trying to get some of the Madagascan species. Yeah. yeah. Australian has always been difficult. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, American prices on Australian animals has always been way higher yep. than than in Australia, obviously. Yeah. Um, with retics, we cannot import them anymore. So that's right. gone. But Indonesia is looking at shutting down a lot of the carpet python exports. They've talked about it year after year. And, uh, you know, it just hasn't. happened yet but at some point it will and whatever we have is all we have yep right and if people if everything people have is a half this half that head albino the stuff that we remember as children will be gone forever which was the case with me with the jampeas i i think the jampea was a very underappreciated clutch that we produced Mm -hmm. but i'm glad we did it i consider it one of my greatest contributions to the reptile industry 
is that we I brought jams back. We sold them for three thousand or um, yeah, three thousand five hundred bucks each for these jams, and they're just a brown snake that used to be the common dwarf. You know that you could probably get imported. I think mine was two hundred seventy-five dollars when I bought one as a kid. <laughs> wow! You know, and I wish I still had it. There's no reason I shouldn't. They live that long, right? So where did they all go? Yeah. You know, where is she now? And yeah. and people don't realize how difficult that. And everyone's like, "Well, I do want them, but I'll wait till next year." There might the not problem be. with this stuff. Well, like with the Jamps, for example, their mom was an older female. She died two, three months after laying eggs. Wow. So I can maybe get you some out of the next generation. I do have a wild caught female chilling here that's never bred for me. If she breeds, sure. She's sitting with a, a clutch of slugs in her right now. Oh. Stuck up. So we'll see if she survives. But it's like I can maybe get you one when my females from this year grew up. But that's the way those things are. They hit. And if you really, truly understand how rare and valuable they are, you've got to snatch those things up. Mm-hmm. Yep. the Karampas are the same way it's the first time they've ever been bred in captivity was this year yeah you know and i held females back as many as i could and so a lot of people have males and i told them if you bought a male you're going to be you know first to be asked to get a female because i want these things to go out in pairs to people who appreciate for them for what they are and, and breed them yeah and so i i think that they're holding on to that male with the hope of finding a female and you know what? That's the situation I was in to put those together. There's five adult Karampas in the country, and I've got three of them here. It took me 14 years to put them together and make a clutch. Now, these people who are waiting on females for me, hopefully they'll only have a year to wait. Right. So we've significantly improved the condition. But I could take that Karampa male and breed into six different more females and be like, look, Karampa tigers, Karampa platinums. But I will not price those the same as a pure Karampa. It wouldn't even be close. Right. You know, yeah. so, so I just flipped the script uh, and told everyone, nope, this is what's actually important and actually rare. <laughs> and that was based on, you know, as a breeder, like you're saying with these people who are working with the, the pure locality stuff, it's so hard and so challenging to find an immaculate IJ, yeah. you know what I mean? With these colors, like that one I saw in a book one time, yep. you know, what people do is they see this beautiful animal in a book, they buy the species and they end up something look like dirt later. But if I want that one from the book, I can look up who took the picture and who the breeder was and maybe get a baby from it. Mm-hmm. Then it's cool. You'd be like, that one's my dad. You know what I mean? The dad <laughs> of my snake. That's where I start to geek out. Yeah. Yes. And and us breeders know this stuff all along. We know what's hard to get a hold of. Right. And what sells the fastest. Yeah. All we have to do is strip the BS marketing away from it and teach people the truth about the animals. Right. Mm-hmm. And then these animals gain a new spotlight that they never had before, where they're being appreciated for the way they are as a preservation of something beautiful from our world. I I view the superdoors as like a bonsai kind of thing. I can have it on my desk, but it reminds me of this beautiful island locality on the other side of the world. Yeah. You know, and it it reconnects me in a way that like a dog never will, because that dog never came out of the wild, you know, not in the last couple thousand years. (laughs) Right. As a golden yeah. retriever right. can be like, I love you. You know what I mean? But that's it. <laughs> you know, the Karampa, I can wonder about what it, what that was like, the set of circumstances for that animal to ever exist in the first place. Yeah. And it makes right. me think about conservation and it makes me think about, you know, those are, those are things that we can become better people if we think about 
And when they're out of sight, they're out of mind. And so we can focus on advertising and and BS marketing and all that kind of stuff, fall for the latest pretty face that walks down or whatever, and then buy that animal and see it rapidly become common and then be left with this the reptile hole of emptiness in our soul. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I bought a banana ball python right. and they were supposed to be the next big thing and now they're cheap or whatever. Like I hear right. people say all the time. Yeah. Or I can be like, nah, I got that clutch of Carampas from 2020. That didn't happen again for seven years. Yeah. I think that that distinction between the instant gratification almost, if you will, versus the things that that take a long time and a lot more uh, deliberate effort Um, that's true with anything, you know, the, the instant gratification is, you know, just a flash, flash in the pan. Whereas the things you have to actually work towards, that's, that's where you're going to feel fulfilled. And just the fact that you were able to define a market through education, um, and, and reframing the way that that group of animals was looked at. I think that that is, that is absolutely fascinating. And, and, that must have been the hardest part, no? Like educating people to see what you are seeing that they mm-hmm. weren't before. I think there's a couple things that come into play that made it work for me. Um, the first is I, I feel like I'm a decent communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, people <laughs> early on in my channel, at least once on a video, people are like, "Are you a teacher?" Especially because I'd use a chalkboard. You know, <laughs> oh, I remember yeah. those. Yeah. yeah, those are great. I remember those. So. I think there's something, or or just like I explained to you, the difference between retics and carpet pythons is like having a, a cat and having an African ho- a lion the size of a cat. It's a different, right. yeah. You, know, you might have litter box the same, everything else, the cat food's the same, but mine has a mane and hunts in a pride. It makes it very different. Um, so there's a, uh, I have a way of breaking things down. And then I also think the world is just ready for truth. Mm-hmm. I think the last generation complains a lot about millennials that they don't understand them and anything like that. But the last generation fell hard for commercialism. They really did. And if you look at what people collect and want today, they're they're very visceral, very raw things. Look at how people, like, I mean, I'm drinking Coke out of the bottle from Mexico. You know what I mean? Because I don't want the whatever Coke I saw at the Super Bowl party or whatever. This connects me to my childhood because I used to spend weekends in Mexico and I taste the real sugar. And it makes a difference to me. I'll never eat a ketchup separate than Heinz. I'm sorry. I'm from Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, there's there are so many things that we use. That you look at like wristwatches, for example, highly collectible and worth a ton of money and completely useless today. But it's amazing when you look at like the craftsmanship that goes into making a timepiece that you wear on your wrist and people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for those things. Yeah. You know, um, people take very, very much pride in what they wear Um, Because they're touching it. It's an experience. And so before people used to collect stuff, the previous generation just collected stuff and the morph market was great for them. They had a lot of stuff, you know, but, but they also got depressed and hooked on Xanax, a whole generation of them. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think, I think we watched our parents go through that and we're tired of it. We don't want it. We're, we're long-term people. There's a lot of less people that are struggling. Like people today have a much better idea of like how to manage debt. They're not getting into as much credit card debt as they did in the past. You know, things like that. They're be making much more fiscal decisions. So people are like, oh, stinking millennials living at home till they're 30, which by the way, if my kids ever listen to this, you're not allowed to do that. Get off your lazy butt and get out of the house. <laughs> but they're doing it a lot of times to set themselves up for a better future. Right. So there's a lot of things about this new generation where they really have it right. I think that there's that 
they're willing to pay for the experience behind something. They're not just trying to get some stuff. I don't want to just go on a price list and buy something labeled as a superdor from somebody. I want to be a part of, you know, this, this revitalization of the native and natural forms of snakes, you know what I mean? Or, or the, even if it's a morph cross or whatever, it's like, there's this really exciting market that now breeds in three dimensions. It's unlike anything else. Yeah. And it adds so many more uh, tools to your your artist's palette, to so many yeah. colors for with which to paint yeah. as a selective breeder. Right. Um, and they appreciate that that experience and and sometimes doing it the hard way mm-hmm. is the better way. Yeah. Right. You know, and so there's an experience to owning animals that you can have. Yeah, to be honest with you, I mean, you guys know this. I know you know this, Riley. Lucas, I'm you seem smart. And I've seen some of your pictures <laughs> <Thank> you. on <laughs> I've seen I've seen your pictures on Instagram. And about half of them are inside with your animals, and the other half are like outside with a garter garter snake. So sure. you don't even need to own an animal to have that animal experience today. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I and was for the last 20 years, every breeder that. has told you the opposite. You need to have this pretty snake to be happy. Bull crap. Go yeah. outside and watch an American toad. You know, yeah. how cool I, is that? I had just posted That's... the picture the other day of the California king snake. And I was talking to Summer, who's who's in the chat. She's here. Yeah. And I, I was saying, like, I keep almost buying a pair of California king snakes. But then I slap myself on the hand and I say, get off the couch and go flip a log. They're exactly. 10 minutes from my house. You know, right. like, now, if I move to the yeah. Netherlands or something, though, I might want to start a, a exactly. California king snake yeah. breeding because it brings me back to my childhood. Right. So for me with the Superdors, like I lived in Indonesia and there's a connection there for me. You know, for a lot of people, it's just that they're so disconnected from something natural, visceral and real to have something that would be you know, an awe-inspiring apex predator with the confidence of a dinosaur mm-hmm. living in your desk and interacting with you, the kind of thing that like pokes its head out of the hide and be like, hey, what's up, boss? What are you doing today? <laughs> you know what I mean? Versus crawling away to hide. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Most reptiles are like keeping tropical fish with the option to pet. I suppose right. you have the option to pet your tropical fish too, but it's generally <laughs> looked down upon. But, but the retics are more like you want to come out and you can open the cage and they crawl out and they check everything out. They go back in their cage. It's a, it's a different kind of experience. And, and for those of us who are you know living in this electronic world, we want those visceral, real connections in, in legitimate ways. I don't want to be sold something and misrepresented it because I bought it from a breeder who didn't fully understand when he was getting his bloodlines. Right. I want the real deal. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's that's irreplaceable and it is literally priceless. So it's very easy for that price, just like the Calato is going from 500 bucks to, you know, to yeah, yeah. we do it at 4,500 a pair now, yeah. almost overnight, like within a couple right. of years. Yeah, I think that's uh, I, the analogy you made with Eric and and his selective breeding of the IJs is perfect. Because if you talk to him and you go down that rabbit hole, you'll see he's pushing like eight different avenues within the IJs because he sees something different in all of them, and he's maintaining that purity and he's keeping keeping the 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 records of who was whose offspring and where they came from. And you know, he's really within the last few years definitely convinced me of that value. And so I've been doing the same thing and collecting you know, imports or farm hatched or whatever from people just to, to get as many as I can, because, but it's not the convincing of value, like as in a marketing thing, it's the truth of the fact that I applaud Eric for doing those. And even though I don't keep carpet pythons, I can't tell you how often I consider going and buying something. If I buy one from him, Matt Minotola with the bloods is the same way. Yeah. Yeah. The Borneos really not the bloods, but the Borneos, 
Um, I want to go buy his most expensive snake as a holdback and pay double what it is on market value so that he can keep doing what he's doing. They are worth money because do you know how expensive it is to have eight bloodlines of IJs when everyone's (laughs) asking for albino Darwins? Yeah. It's outrageously expensive. It's unbelievable. And he does just have to flip the script and say, these are hard for me and I don't care if I keep them all. Yeah. And then the price goes up and that's all that's happened with me because of uh, how amazing our customers are. And these people that understand this experiential value Mm-hmm. that they have with an animal over just collecting stuff. And yeah. so that's what happened. I don't really think it had anything to do with me. I just think I liked Superdoors more than everyone else for a little while. Sure. Now everyone's passing me up because like, oh yeah, those are awesome. <laughs> and the market's exploding. Yeah. It was just it, it was just the right time and the right place. That's all it was. It wasn't any magic that I did. But I do think as business owners and breeders, we should value truth over marketing possess. You know, everyone, like a, a lot of my customers get mad that I don't have that availability list. Like you would sell so many more if you did that. And I'm like, I don't know. I talked to all the guys who have them and they said I was doing better than them. So I think you're wrong. Yeah. You know, um, mm-hmm. and and the idea is we're, we're just, all I do is, uh, we have 230 videos on YouTube all about dwarves and super doors. And I have so many more topics that I want to cover. You know what I mean? It's just crazy. And so all we do is geek out on camera and tell people the truth. And I don't think anyone's seen that. So I think it's like a refreshing Mm -hmm. drink of Mexican Coke that the world (laughs) needs right now. You know what I mean? With all in the world of artificial sweeteners. Yeah. Yeah. Poetry. Yeah. That was beautiful. Very well said. Absolutely. Uh, you yeah, are good I, at communicating. <laughs> <laughs> I rant. I rant and I'm passionate about it. If you ask me to tell you something else, I'll stink at it. But as long as I can keep <laughs> talking about super dwarfs, I think I'll be okay because I, I love them. I, they're just yeah. amazing. And how cool is it for any one of us to find what it is that we really love in life and, and be able to pursue it and enjoy it? Yeah. So, I like I said, more. I'm okay going back to work at a box factory if I need to take care of my family because I'm that kind of guy. In the meantime, I keep making my paychecks. So I'm just, we'll just write it and see where it goes. I'm not worried about strategies and marketing. If it fails, I have one way that this works for me. And it's the only way that's fun for me. Eric asked me too, why I don't answer my phone on nights and weekends. Another thing that drives customers crazy. And I can't tell you how many times someone asks me something Friday night at midnight. I get back to them Monday night at 9 a.m. And they're like, I already bought it from somebody else. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Right. Because my weekends are for me. Yeah. And and if they're not, then I'll go get a nine to five job somewhere else and punch a clock and I'm all right with that. Yeah. And and that's the the kind of moral boundary that I've set up for myself that I don't really want to cross. Everything I work for is to improve the quality of my life, my animals' lives, and my customers' lives that I feel personally responsible for. Yeah. And as long as you stay with that and you don't worry about the dollar bills, I think that comes secondary. Yeah. Sell sell what you care about to all those people who are breeding ball pythons because they're popular right now. Get rid of them. Yeah. Go get, I mean, if you love them, do it. Ball pythons are great, but if you don't, don't breed those because someone said you had to. Right. Well, that's the bread and butter. And where's the rest going to come from? Hmm. You know, I mean, that's the one species that everyone's bred that I never have is is ball pythons but i i think that you will find maybe maybe you need ball pythons to be successful doing something you don't want to do but if that was the case go get a job outside the reptile industry it's easier you'll make more money yeah if you want to be happy work with the animals you love yeah i couldn't agree more and and i think that 
that passion when somebody is really in love with the species or, or fascinated with that species. I think that that luckily is really hard to fake. And yeah. I think when it's there, it's evident and it's magnetic. Um, yeah. And that, and yeah. you have that Lucas, you have that too. And you're, <laughs> like there are people you can tell, you can see it in, and when they talk about what it is they're working on, you know, Lucas, you're very passionate about uh, Centralian pythons, blackheads, womas, um, you know, you're really focused on your, your research as it applies to that and some of the studies and it's very palpable. Garrett, you're very into your super dwarfs and everything that you've done thus far for them and creating that value. And it's very palpable. And I think that's why people are so drawn to it. And everything you said, you know, was that was absolutely spot on. Um, I think the biggest thing is, yeah, like you said, do what you love, you know, work with the species you love because otherwise you're just wasting your time. And that's when people start really, you know, supporting you is because they see that you love it. You're portraying that you love it and you're getting them geeked and stoked on it. Um, and, and it just makes it this whole thing for everybody to get involved. What's really fun is, uh, you know, it all comes back. We're, we're recording this for Morelia Python radio network. Mm -hmm. Right. And <laughs> it, it really, honestly, it all started. Eric is the OG guy who did that. Yep. And, um, and he's basically, I mean, like you said, it's magnetic. Mm -hmm. So his philosophies in, in, you know, he put a lot of time and work into building this platform mm -hmm. and it now attracts people like you guys and me and right. stuff like that to take part and participate. Mm -hmm. I've been telling people ever since I went to the, the original carpet fest and I'm not a carpet Python guy. I said, that was the best event I've ever been to. It's like a hundred best reptile event. It's like a hundred people that are seriously passionate about what they're into. And we're not selling a thing. No. Yeah. Nothing's for sale, which <laughs> right. is great. So it's completely unbiased and you're hanging out with genuine people who love what they do. Yeah. And so honestly, um, I mean, I've got to hand it to you guys for help promoting the platform and furthering this stuff. What, what's happening, guys, is that there's a movement and a community of people who genuinely care about the animals and, and care about stuff in life. And it makes me very, very hopeful for the future. And yeah. I can easily dwell on the bad and negative things that happen in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, but those are temporary. That's just somebody complaining because they're cranky today or they didn't eat their Snickers bar or whatever. You know, the stuff that's really going to have a lasting uh, yeah, there you go. The stuff that's going to have a, a lasting influence and impact in this is are these kinds of movements right now where you're allowing people to do what they love and be who they are. And then you're supporting them in that because the world doesn't have enough of that. And so if you can find Eric says it all the time, you vote with your dollar, buy from breeders you love because yep. your dollar allows them to keep doing it tomorrow. And I will go back and, and go to the box factory and the super dork market will be whatever it is after I'm gone if I can't make money here. So it's not about the money, but if consumers want more of that truth and that, that visceral, real, experiential reptile keeping community vibe that, that is a part of this platform, they must, they must support those breeders. And even if it's not buying a snake, it's like, I mean, do whatever we can, you know, um, buying sticker shirts, you know, those, the silly swag things that people do joining mm -hmm. Patreon accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, honestly, even if you have no money, just sharing links to videos like this and say, everyone needs to hear this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, huge thing that, you know, everybody listening should do to support. 
If yep. something really connects with you, you got to get out there and mm. keep these things alive or they will die off. It's like an animal. If you, you stop feeding it, it dies. Yeah. You know? So anyway, thank you guys very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. The platform is awesome. I, I mean, you know, I love you guys. So Lucas, I just met you, but yeah, it's great you, to meet you. It's let they give honor. you a big hug in 2021 when the whole <laughs> pandemic Virtual is over. Hug. There yeah. you go. What's up? Oh, hug the computers. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in real tight, Lucas. Where are you out of? I'm in Oakland. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So, so you're gonna do like the uh, Southwest Carpet Fest next time? Oh, absolutely. As soon yeah. as all this COVID business is over, I don't want to miss any of the Carpet Fest. I'll hop in the car. There you go. There you <laughs> go. Right on. I'm sure I'm we'll sure. connect at some point. But thank you so much for being here. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it was my pleasure. Absolutely, guys. And hopefully, I was able to answer some of those questions with a That's little perfect. bit of decency. I just don't think there's any magic to it i think just be genuine and and be around people who are genuine yeah and that's how you do it yeah yeah no, thank well you said. for taking time out of your day and and really shedding light on it because i knew that you had that approach but i i think i think deep down inside i wanted to unpack it a little bit more and do it for everyone to see because i mean you're you're so good at at doing it on your channel i thought there was so much potential to cross over i just wanted to unpack those those yeah. ideas here and and uh it was perfect. It was better than I expected. So, well, I'm really excited to see what happens in the carpet python community as a whole, as all these underappreciated animals are starting to get a little bit of limelight. Yeah. And if if people, if everybody gets into exactly what they love and they really double down on that, oh man, it's gonna be such a cool place. Yeah. Everyone needs to get rid of those racks with the ball pythons and fill them up with the stuff that they love. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that's when the the hobby is really gonna flourish. So. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be in reptiles. That's for dang sure. Absolutely. Bingo. Yeah. Cool. Well, right. we're gonna end it on that note, Eric. Uh, thank you guys for uh, for hanging out and uh, spending some time. I know it's morning for me. You guys in the afternoon, you got stuff to do. Lucas, you got a nap to take. I'm sure. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> I want tacos now. I'm gonna track down some tacos I need for myself tacos as well. So. <laughs> All right. Well, it's taco time. We're gonna let everyone go. Thank you for everyone who's joined us in the chat. It's been a good time, and uh, look forward to doing it again. All right. Take care, All right. guys. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Take care. Bye-bye. Later.